Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Paul, we got to bring in an esteemed guest to wrap in the politics, the international relations with the markets. Carl Weinberg, High Frequency Economics, with his work over the years, OECD, IMF, debt workouts internationally, and of course, uh, with Lehman a couple coffees ago uh, as well. (laughs) Carl, I'm going to give you an opening salvo. Why should our American listeners care about these EU elections? Well, they, they really shouldn't care very much about these EU elections unless they happen to be investing in European uh, bonds and uh, they're worried a little bit about Italy and uh, the license that uh, the Italian government might f- feel free to take. Now that uh, the populists got a, a better reading on this go-around, the M5 star movement is uh, out of it a little bit. The more sane league is in charge. They have a potential new partner. So maybe we'll see some challenges uh, on the budget side from Italy. And that could give the bond market a little bit of a shake. That's an investment opportunity for some. Futures negative 5, Dow futures negative 14. But the yields are, the 10-year the, the yield is 2.29%. Yeah, and the 10-year yield on Bunds is minus 15 basis points. That's a, an even more exciting story. You know, that spread it will be appealing to some, uh, and people will look into that, I'm sure. Uh, but at the, the other end of the curve, to me, the German story is what's exciting. We've been talking at high-frequency economics for a long time now about Bund yields going negative, about uh, the shortage of Bunds in the market, about low inflation risks in Germany despite a, high, uh, a very low domestic unemployment rate because of the open borders and the low jobless rate in Europe. And this story is all coming together. It's a very exciting story. But negative bond yields pose risks for the financial system. And that, too, is something American investors should be paying attention to. Well, Carl, what do you think the the latest twist in the Brexit negotiations and the EU elections, what does that mean for Brexit in the European economy from your perspective? Anything changed in the last several days from your perspective? Uh, absolutely nothing. You know, I don't really care who's absolutely prime, nothing. I, I don't really care who's prime minister. The parliamentary arithmetic isn't changed by any of this. We still have no majority in parliament and therefore nothing can get done. I quoted to my high frequency economics readers this weekend, Abraham Lincoln, a house divided against he was itself. Last week. <laughs> a house divided against itself cannot stand. And at the end of the day, it won't fall, but it has to be all one or all the other in order to, to persist. And that's where we are in Britain. I think the only way this will be resolved is through national elections and new government. And hopefully someone will win those elections and then we'll have a chance of getting something done on Brexit. How concerned should your readers, our listeners, be about some of the the, 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 the rising trade tensions over the last several weeks? How do you view them between the U.S. and China? Well, um, there's two aspects to that. The first is that any breaking on world trade through tariffs or trade restrictions or predatory commercial policy, that's all bad for world trade. And anything that's bad for world trade is bad for the world economy. Every time world trade growth dips, something bad happens to world GDP. The other side of the coin is that so far, these, uh, th- this war is not all that large. If, if China lost all of its exports to the United States, all $500 billion worth, it would cost its GDP 3.5% 
once and then it would go right back to growing again where it was before and, and it's growing at six and a half percent china despite all the stuff you read about in the press uh, china is not in a recession of any kind it's growing at six and three quarters percent for goodness sake it's doing quite strong enough to be able to withstand the shock and of course china is not going to lose all of its trade with the u.s over this it'll lose just a sliver of it what is the power dynamic right now between Beijing and Washington? The president comes back from Japan. We've seen all the back and forth. Carl, you're deeply experienced in what is between the lines. Who has the upper hand right now? Let's see. Right now, as I remember from physics, what power is force times distance or something like that, and that implies that something is pushing against something else. And right now, nothing is happening. Right, nobody's pushing against anyone. No, else. but there's okay, wise guy. Are we going to go Newtonian? <laughs> but John nothing, Tucker, can we go Newtonian mechanics this but, morning? No, oh, please do. Okay, look, f equals g, f equals g m m over r squared. The two m's are the moon and the sun. What's the mass right now of U.S. blather versus the mass of Chinese silence? So that's right. It's exactly right. China won't talk, and that's a very powerful force in a negotiation. <laughs> See? All right. So, so China right now says we have our principles, and if you won't abide with these principles, we'd rather endure the pain of the tariffs to achieve our goals, which are modernization and development on our plan. And the Trump administration is frustrated. So President Trump is doing what he has done frequently, what he did with Japan this weekend, what he's doing with China, which is he's saying we're not ready to make a deal with China. All right. He's disengaged. Beijing, right? China, Beijing won't give President Trump a plank for his re-election platform by giving him a deal on trade. That's just where it is right now. And maybe the next administration, maybe the next Trump administration or whoever will come in with a more conciliatory view and be willing to work with the Chinese. But this administration isn't and the Chinese aren't buying it. So you don't expect anything over the next year and a half meaningful between the U.S. and China? I don't think we'll see any agreement. You know, we may... Even, even just kind of a headline agreement to kind of get it off the table? Well, the Chinese have drawn a red line in the sand. They said any agreement must include the immediate elimination of all tariffs. And that just ain't going to happen out of this current administration team because people on that team believe incorrectly that the tariffs are exerting an unbearable force on the Chinese economy. And that's not the case. This is a, a, a $13, 14000000000000 trillion economy, and you're threatening it with a tax that we're paying on $500 billion worth of goods that they produce that they can easily sell to somebody else. All right? There's no unbearable force at work right. here. Well, okay, I, I can't. This physics is killing me. I'm, I feel like it's Sears and Zemansky a few uh, years ago. Okay, if there's an unbearable force, something clears. There's a leakage. There's a leakage within the system, and that is the currency market. Do you have optimism that currency markets could compensate for mistakes made along the way in trade? Well, you know, the, there are different. There can be different views as to where the mistakes are, but I believe that the Chinese should not be, uh, how should I say this, we shouldn't deny the risk that China will pursue a devaluation of the yuan against the dollar while maintaining its value against its baskets, its reference basket currencies, as a way of offsetting the impact of these tariffs. And that's what we're seeing right now. The trade-weighted basket is flat and the yuan is depreciating against the dollar. And this is a perfect storm for the Chinese because every percent that the yeah. yuan falls against the dollar, that's less of a burden that the tariffs impose on the prices of goods that are traded. Physics with Carl Weinberg. There it is, <laughs> Tuesday morning to get your ex Memorial Day uh, started. Carl, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. It has been a weekend of tumult, particularly for Europe. 
uh, I guess we knew it. It was all news. But nevertheless, there are significant uh, reactions as well. So let's go a little IR here with negative interest rates. <clears throat> Every more negative in Europe. The Swiss 20-year, uh, now a negative rate. Again, not record lows, but nevertheless there. And we can synthesize all this and what it means for markets with Jacob Kierkegaard, with the Peterson Institute, a senior fellow, but that very, uh, just barely, I should say, describes how he's thought about Europe and what it means for America and all, uh, just all sorts of ways to go here, including his work at our house in Den Denmark and his book, Transforming the European <clears throat> Economy. Jacob, let me ask you an open question to begin. What is your unique insight of what we saw in these EU elections? Well, I think, uh, first of all, we should be clear that uh, what it's <clears throat> in some ways actually signaled was the birth of European democracy. Because I think it was the first time you've ever had a European election, which is really kind of 28 different elections in member states, yeah. really synthesized into more of a single one. And it was really an election that was about, uh, do you want the far right uh, to march uh, onwards uh, ever stronger? And I think what we did see was that participation in these elections were up about 10%. Uh, and therefore, we did not see uh, anything like, uh, you know, we basically had uh, a lot of people turning out against that. And I think that's really the main story. Right. Here. And then there's a lot of implications for different individual countries. But this is the big story. And I and bring it over to, and I think of your uh, Adam Posen at Peterson Institute, the need to provide fiscal liquidity into a system with imploding interest rates. All of our conversations at Bloomberg Surveillance today, is it still an austere Europe? Is it still austerity across Europe and particularly Germany? Uh, I would say much less so, actually, because one thing we did see uh, is the one uh, major breakthrough that the far right uh, had was in Italy, where Salvini uh, won big. And he's certainly uh, uh, going to propose tax cuts and more fiscal spending. And even in Germany, when you look at the German fiscal impulse this year, it's going to be positive to the tune of 0.7 to 0.8 percent of GDP. And obviously Macron in France, who actually, when you look uh, closer at the results, uh, did quite well, uh, even if he didn't beat Marine Le Pen, uh, is also, of course, uh, uh, promoting fiscal uh, stimulus. So I would say that uh, this is not 2012. Uh, this is Europe in some ways reaping the benefits of uh, perhaps the policy mistakes that were made uh, six or seven years ago by spending some of that fiscal space that uh, the continent has. So, Jacob, what do these elections mean for the Brexit process in the near to, let's say, intermediate term? Well, I think the UK is a classic example of how these elections have really shuffled uh, the national political circumstances in member states, because what we have already seen what we saw, of course, was that the Labour Party lost almost as much as the Conservative Party uh, did to the Brexit, uh, to Farage's Brexit Party. And Corbyn has already been, if you like, uh, absorbing the consequences of that loss to the Liberal Democrats and is moving ever more explicitly into backing a second referendum on Brexit. 
Um, and if that happens, uh, then I think you basically have a com- totally bifurcated outlook for the UK. Either you have a no-deal Brexit or you have no Brexit at all. And it really comes down to uh, what the majority in the current British Parliament uh, uh, will do. And then, of course, uh, who will be the next uh, leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, but there has been, and this is already a massive uh, impact on the UK. So again, give us your sense of, you mentioned a second referendum. There's those that are saying, gee, we're, we're at the point now where this might be, you know, really the only way to go. Do you think that the second referendum is on the table? Oh, I think it's very much on the table. I think if you look at the outcome of these elections, I think you will see that uh, parties that were explicitly in favor of a second referendum uh, won almost as much as the uh, Conservatives and uh, the Brexit Party combined. And the swing vote, if you like, is basically the Labour Party. And you have seen senior uh, Labour officials, including Jeremy Corbyn himself, actually come out and say, well, actually, if we don't do this, we're going to uh, be killed by the Liberal Democrats in the next UK general election. Jacob, give us a broader picture here in in the next few minutes. I mean, we go from Conrad Adenauer, just to use Germany as a model, to Helmut Kohl, to Schroeder, to Merkel, etc. What's the next for Jacob Kierkegaard across Europe? I mean, what's, what's the next wave in the conservative, liberal battle nation to nation in Europe? And frankly, you can drag America into it as well, folks. What do you see as the next political continuum? Well, I think that the the first big battle we're going to have in Europe is going to be all about uh, who takes the big jobs uh, that are becoming vacant at the presidency of the European Commission and the European Central Bank, uh, etc. That's going to be a a, a big showdown between predominantly France and Germany. Um, And so far, based on these elections, I'd say it's advantage uh, Macron. Uh, I think he gets to choose which of the two jobs he wants. Uh, basically, and I think he probably will choose the commission, uh, which means that I am personally uh, uh, thinking that uh, probably since one of the effects of the increased uh, participation in the European election is that the the, the, um, legitimacy of the Schmitzing process is uh, much enhanced, so my bet for those jobs will be uh, probably Vestager for uh, commission president and Jens Weidmann uh, at the ECB. I think that's just <clears throat> ever uh, more well, likely. Does he have to go out and get other nations to join him in voting, or does France just dictate what they want? Oh, no, no, no. He, he's actively courting, courting uh, yeah. uh, other yeah. countries. Uh, uh, he, you know, he had dinner yesterday with uh, the socialist uh, uh, premier of Spain. He has uh, been talking to a lot of different countries. Uh, so no, no, no. He's, if you like, actively campaigning among the other leaders, also attracting uh, more parties to his new uh, liberal grouping in the European Parliament. So he's still very much on the campaign trail, whereas you know, quite frankly, Angela Merkel, uh, whose party obviously didn't do very well uh, in Germany, is, in my opinion, clearly on the defensive uh, following what was a clear uh, green victory uh, in the German elections. I mean, I mean, he's probably getting them Eiffel Tower tickets in that, <laughs> the restaurant there, you know, way up. You know, like it's impossible. I haven't been to, there. How is that? 
I, I we tried to get in. I you know I tried. To, Francine pulled every string she could. And if she can't, okay. You know I I couldn't get in. Jacob Kierkegaard, thank you so much. Just really well timed. Thrilled to have you with us with the Peterson Institute. Go to their website. Just really really trenchant stuff on EU and, and and how it redounds back to the United States as well. Lindsay Piegs is with us. Uh, we're still, she joins us right now. Lindsay, it's a blur of economic data. What are you focused on this week? Well, I think the biggest focus will be GDP. I, I think the street is going to really hone in on whether or not we see a sizable revision to the start of the year. Yeah. I don't expect we will. I, I do think we'll see maybe a, a tenth or two shaved off of that top line number, but it really leaves the thesis in place, meaning that growth exceeded expectations at the start of the year, setting the bar high. But when we start to look at the data leading into the second quarter, right. it does appear to be a very short-lived uh, above-trend uh, position. Okay, link what you just said into consumer confidence, which we're going to get a snapshot of today, <laughs> right. and into what we actually see with consumer spending. I mean, does it all dovetail nicely together? No, it doesn't. It used to. Before, back in the day, when we looked at consumer confidence and it was strong, that generally translated into very robust mm -hmm. spending numbers. We saw retail sales very solid. This time around, we continue to hear that the, the consumer is confident, that they're feeling good, but their actions aren't matching that positive sentiment. And in fact, we've seen retail sales now trend negative for three of the last five months, despite the fact that confidence is at multi-year highs. So the consumer is saying one thing, but doing quite another. So Lindsay, would you, is it your opinion that the Fed has done a relatively admirable job in kind of engineering kind of what can be characterized as a soft landing, growth still decent, inflation low, the consumer generally hanging in there? Is that your, your take at the moment? I think the Fed has done a very good job. I do think that they got a little over their skis last year. They got a little too aggressive with rate hikes. We could have done without the fourth, certainly the fourth, maybe even the third last year. As we see now from market fundamentals that uh, the Fed has pushed beyond neutral. And I mean the inversion, the partial inversion of the yield curve. At this point, we do need a rate cut, if not two rate cuts just to right the slope of the yield curve, let alone start to give back some of that accommodation to the market to ensure that we do soften the, the blow from the weakness as we expect going further into 2019. So Lindsay, in the first quarter earnings uh, calls, you know, we started to hear more and more, particularly from the retailers, uh, just kind of saying, hey, the trade tensions that are out there that are mounting, um, it's not necessarily a big issue now, but it's certainly uh, could very well be in the later part of the year. How concerned are you that trade tensions or the lack of any resolution can weigh on the consumer, weigh on the economy? Oh, absolutely. Now, when we talk about the tariffs already implemented, so we look at late 2017 into 2018, we estimate the tariffs shaved off about two-tenths of a percentage point from GDP. So not a significant amount, but as we look out to 2019 and beyond, and we expect momentum to wane in terms of top-line fundamentals, those tenths of a percentage point will add up. Now we talk about heightened level of tariffs, as well as the threat of an additional round of levies possibly placed, and of course, Chinese retaliatory action. This is 
going to compound that negative impact on the economy. For businesses, we hear that many at 10% were able to eat that, that cost increase and not pass that on to the consumer. At 25%, this is going to be increasingly difficult. Now, again, businesses may not be able to pass that directly on to consumers without the risk of losing market share, but that means that internally, they're going to have to find efficiencies and cost reductions, which is likely to translate into income and wage cuts, which, again, will filter into the economy and indirectly hit the consumer. Lindsay, thank you so much. As we get started on an economic week, and again, a, a plethora, is, there, is that the right word? Bob? Yeah, that's, plethora, that's perfect. That captures Plethora it. of data uh, coming out later in the week, a real snapshot into the market, and then right to June and those critical ISM numbers uh, as well. There's medicine, there's politics, there's all the big issues we talk about every day. But no one, and I mean no one, has had more effect on families in America than our next guest. His name is Brian Kelly. I don't know what he did. He was on Wall Street doing something nefarious. And he set up a website called The Points Guy to talk about bank cards and frequent flyer miles and changed the language and action of every one of us. Mr. Kelly joins us now. Brian, I want to say thank you again and, and just all you've done to make us travel maybe more reasonable. Let's get the, out of the way the tension between the airlines and the banks right now. What do the banks want in the next 24 months from the airlines? And what do the airlines want in the next 24 months from all these charge cards? Well, it's interesting. Delta and Amex actually just re-upped their relationship for the next five years. So we can probably expect to see some new bonuses and even some new credit cards. You know, the banks and the, the airlines have a pretty cozy relationship. The, the frequent flyer programs are huge profit centers. So For who? Uh, for, for the airlines. The airlines sell billions of dollars worth of miles to the credit card companies. And then, of course, the credit card companies make a whole ton of money, you know, every time people swipe their cards on the transactions. So it's a pretty uh, profitable ecosystem right. for everyone. I want to go to your Scott Clark, who wrote a brilliant small article on Air New Zealand in Auckland. And buried in it, Brian Kelly's The Future I See, which is nobody wants to fly economy, but they can't afford business class and first class is dead. Tell us about all these new levels to get me out of economy. Well, the, the big thing is premium economy. Um, the U.S. airlines, you know, the, the three major U.S. airlines, they used to have fake premium economy where it was basically just a coach seat with a little bit of extra recline. Oh, really? That's, that's all, <laughs> I know. That's I can say this, folks, because Sweeney's six foot three. Brian <laughs> Kelly's like six seven, and then there's me. <laughs> but the airlines now, Delta United and American, all have real, true premium economy that, that's rolled out with over the last year. And, and they're making a ton of money off of it. They're, they're yielding twice as much from premium economy than they are traditional economy seats. Because airfares are still really cheap in economy with so many low-cost carriers. So I think the sweet spot for the U.S. airlines is on the premium economy and, and charging a premium for their, you know, the business class suites that we've seen Delta uh, roll out with. So, Brian, as, as much as I love spending my summers on the Jersey Shore, I think I want to go to Europe this summer. Where's the Where, where do I go? What's the cheapest uh, place to go? Well, Norwegian Air is probably, you know, I would look at where mm-hmm. Norwegian is flying. Their, their fares are really, really low, um, even for last-minute travel. Now, the traditional airlines, you know, no matter where you go, um, they charge 
for international flights, you want to be booking at least eight weeks in advance for international. So if you're looking already for July 4th, you may be bumping up against some really expensive fares. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would, I would either use your frequent flyer miles, see where the cheapest places that you can go. Um, some of the airlines like American now have routes to um, Bologna and some other, you know, Dubrovnik, Croatia. And, and on those routes that aren't selling very well, you may be able to use your frequent flyer miles for the, the cheapest amount possible. So I would say be flexible, check Norwegian, check your frequent flyer miles. There's, there are deals out there, but you need to sniff them out. It's interesting. On the Bloomberg Terminal today, there's a story out there entitled A Rough Summer Awaits Travelers Facing Fewer Flights and TSA Staff. Do you think that's going to be an issue? You know, I think the TSA, you know, since the shutdown resumed, I personally, I mean, I have pre-check and I fly once, twice, three times a week. And pre-check for me has been pretty good. And even I always check the, the normal lanes. I don't see it being that bad. What I will say is this summer, there's going to be record travelers. It's all about choosing the right flight time. So we did an analysis of millions of flights and flights that leave at 7 a.m. have a 90% chance of leaving and arriving on time or early. So, you know, especially in the New York City airports where air traffic control backs up, I highly recommend 7, 8, 9, and 10 a.m. flights will get you to where you're going on time statistically the most. And does that include Newark, <laughs> Newark Airport? Yeah, and Newark like... as well. Yeah. Newark's actually the best of those three. So, you know, I... you, we, we were talking about slicing and dicing of the seats. I mean, I remember a day, you know, it was just economy and first class. Are, are we going to get to the point where they're almost selling rows and in individual seats? Because, boy, when you go on to kind of pick a seat, it's a lot more complicated than it used yep. to be. Well, it's interesting. All Nippon Airways, they, they just added their Sky Couch as well. Air New Zealand has that where you can actually buy a pad that you put over the three seats in economy and you can lay down kind of like the poor man's business class. But it's, they're actually doing really well and they're selling an up, a premium to so you and if you have kids, you can kind of lay out in economy because, yeah, things are really tight in the back of the bus. The economy is not economy anymore in some <laughs> of these flights. I, yeah. I mean... How does, you know, in this case, British Air, in full disclosure, folks, when the Gulf Stream doesn't work, I'm on BA. But, <laughs> but you know, how do they get away with $1,600, $1,200 for an economy seat? And they get away with it because somebody's buying it, right? Someone's buying it, and people, that's why I say check Norwegian Air. Norwegian on the same flights to London, last minute I had to buy. And it's, you know, their premium product, you know, $700 last minute one way. British Airways and the major carriers, if you buy a one-way ticket or if you're buying a last minute, they gouge you because they know, you know, they're hoping to get the business travelers whose corporate departments will pay whatever fee, and they're not going to put them on Norwegian. But truly, Norwegian in economy with free Wi-Fi, it's a 787 newer plane. It's actually a better experience. So I know I'm the points guy. I'm all about, you know, get points. You know, if you're an American frequent flyer, you may want to get your BA, you know, credit for the BA flight, but sometimes it's just not worth it, especially when you're paying double or triple the price for economy. It's not that much different. What are some of the popular uh, destinations this summer that you're seeing? Uh, is there anything unusual that people are just saying, hey, this is the new it place to go? You know, I think Iceland's dying down a little bit, especially since Wow Air collapsed, although we still see huge demand yeah. there. Um, and, you know, the, the dollar is still relatively strong. So this, this year, Europe is still a top destination uh, for travelers. Um, but we're still seeing places like Croatia um, and, uh, you know, Italy is still a really top destination. So there's nowhere off, really off the wall that we're seeing, you know, all, yeah. the, all the top destinations in Europe. 
What's the trend you see Pacific? I mean, we talk Atlantic here because we're based in New York, but what's the trend you see in Pacific this year for American listeners, Brian Kelly? Well, I mean, for trans-Pacific travel, we're seeing, um, actually, one of the interesting things, we're seeing first class going away altogether. So yes, Asiana yes, Air- yes. Airlines is, is getting rid of their first class. Um, but interestingly, there's a new low-cost carrier coming out of uh, Seoul. The, the founder of Botox is starting his own airline. With <laughs> oh, perfect for me. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I, I think the similar thing that we've seen on the transatlantic with low-cost carriers coming in, less of the first class and more, yeah. you know, these, these – uh, and even Cathay right. Pacific has gotten rid of first class on some flights. But, yeah. you know, airfares are still really cheap. We, we're seeing Hong Kong Airlines has entered the market really strongly. We're seeing under $500 you can go from the East Coast to Hong Kong. So even wow. though, you know, it is a tight wow. fit in the back of the bus, there are still amazing yeah. airfares out there. Yeah. Give us the sick first class, fancy, fancy Brian Kelly, where you flew somewhere for $12. What's the latest Brian well, Kelly actually, outrage? What I book, so this is a tip I'll, I'll give. You know, whenever airlines announce new flights, whenever they put them up for sale, generally they're really cheap uh award miles ticket. So this fall, Delta, December 22nd, they start flying JFK to Mumbai. And it's a, you know, $9,000 round trip flight. Yeah. And I got a, I'm flying one way for 135,000 sky miles, <laughs> which if you use Delta miles, 135,000 to go New York to India in their Delta one suite is a screaming deal. So I was pretty proud of that one. But he's got to get back. <laughs> Some, but just... I, yeah, but you know, so you could, that's the, the beauty of miles that you can book one way on Delta. I'm actually going to be going to the Maldives, so I'm going to fly Emirates home from there. Because you know, oh, God. It's close we, enough to we just we just wish we had his life. And I'll be on the Garden oh, State Brian, Parkway down to the Jersey Shore with the masses. Brian Kelly, go away. The points guy. I can't say enough about it. And of course, one of the great charms of Brian Kelly is he is always said responsible use of charge cards uh, is the way to go. He did that right from the beginning. Can't say enough about his impact. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.